In chapter 6, we're going to look at a super important chapter on the nature of the church, the structure of the church, and the importance of uh, being a part of the church. Uh, but one of the things we follow up on right at the beginning of chapter 6 is the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the most difficult sections to memorize, but it is great if we are sticklers about making sure we've got that down, the second half of the Old Testament, and the next time we can get into making sure we can say the whole thing. But being able to say that second half, uh, super helpful, important. We don't want to skip it or fudge on that. The uh, memory verse for this week is helpful too, just to kind of even discuss what it means that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And a little bit of a different translation there in the ESV, but just maybe even to look it up and uh, define those English words and to talk about how the church plays such an important role in God's economy. Uh, then we get right into the chapter talking about the need for the church. Now this may be on that very first page of the chapter, something not quite as pressing as it might be for someone not in partners. We assume that your partner got involved in this through the local church, so uh, they're probably already a part of it, but important for us to talk about the need for getting together uh, and not being a lone ranger, being out on our own, but uh, relying on the church as a part of our uh, spiritual lives, doing this as a team effort and being brothers and sisters in Christ, the importance of that. So we want to underscore that. If there's any kind of um, maybe inconsistency in your partner's uh, church attendance, it's not based on uh, you know illness or some work project, but this is something you haven't seen a consistency in. It's a good place right at the beginning of this chapter to talk about the importance of devoting ourselves to getting together on a regular basis. So we want to stress that. In the opening uh, major section here after the introduction deals with uh, defining the church or the nature of the church. And uh, we want to make this really, really clear, uh, particularly today when people like to defer uh, or default, I should say, to the fact that they're a part of the universal church. And while your partner may not have that in their thinking, they will certainly run into many people who watch someone like you or your partner uh, being so involved in the local church and they'll say, hey, uh, I don't get why you do that because aren't we all a part of the universal church and they'll say that's my church being able to look through uh, the data that we have there on those first few pages about the use of the word church in the new testament and how the um, regular usage of that i mean a, a large preponderance of of uses of the word church uh, almost exclusively are relating to the local church a church in a specific geographic location and we want to make it clear that that's god's design for us all to be a part of a church. And a church is not a Bible study. It's not something that uh, is created from the ground up where you just get together in a group and appoint someone to be the pastor. Uh, looking through all of these verses and thinking carefully about what distinguishes uh, a church, a specific church that is organized under uh, pastors and, and uh, ministry leaders, that is uh, super important for us to define and to distinguish from the Bible's use of the concept of universal church. Uh, one of the problems with being a part of the universal church and not being a part of a, a specific church in a geographic location is that you can never be obedient to Christ. We never meet as a universal church. Uh, you, never, uh, you never take the Lord's Supper. You never baptize people. These are things that are done in the context of a specific church. As a matter of fact, all of the uh, universal church really begins at uh, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and isn't uh, completed until the rapture of, of the church. So you've got, you know, most of the church is either not yet here, not yet born or converted, or most of them, certainly from our vantage point, uh, are long since died and have gone on to be with Christ. So uh, we, we cannot default uh, to the universal church and say that that's our um, 
that's our loyalty. We're all about a specific church in a specific place and being committed to being a part of that church as our local church and local fellowship. And, uh, and we can't have any ambiguity about that as we get into the rest of the chapter. In the next section of chapter six, we talk about, uh, we call this section, Your Church. And we begin by talking about a church's purpose. Uh, and for those that are a part of Compass Bible Church, this is easy because it fits so uh, well, the verbiage of it with what we state uh, all throughout our documentation of our church and about our church on our website or here at the church with this chapter. It's easy to do. But at least this first section is one that most evangelical Bible-believing churches are going to affirm uh, in some way, and that is that we're here uh, to carry out the Great Commission. I mean, that's one thing we can rally around as one of the primary things that we're called to do, which is broken into three parts. And I find a lot of churches across the country recognize this uh, based on the participles of Matthew 28 there in the Great Commission. And certainly we recognize that we're here to reach people for Christ, uh, to bring them across that line as ambassadors of Christ, being fishers of men, seeing people evangelize. That's the first aspect of it. Uh, seeing people taught in Christ, uh, taught to obey everything that Christ commanded. Uh, that second aspect is certainly prominent as we get together and, and big you know, obvious part of our meetings are about teaching, teaching the Bible, encouraging people pastorally uh, to obey what the Bible says, um, and, and then to be able to equip people to do the work of reaching people and teaching people. That uh, has to happen in every church at some level, some kind of leadership training, some kind of development of the, uh, of the church, the flock, to be able to be prepared to do evangelism, apologetics, uh, to do basic ministry within the church. All of that uh, is something that most evangelical churches have defined. And if your partner uh, is in another church or you're doing this in another church, it'd be a good thing to uh, just try and see if, if your church can give shape to that uh, in some kind of purpose statement, that, that this is what your church is all about. Because certainly in the New Testament, this is what the New Testament church is commissioned to be all about. Uh, so to clarify that purpose and just talk about why, if you're part of Compass, why we make this such a prominent part of our thinking, why it directs what we do, why every program, every uh, event, even every meeting should be able to trace its way back to one of these three components of the Great Commission. That's a super important thing to spend some time in as we study uh, chapter six. The next subsection here under your church deals with the doctrinal statement, the church's doctrine. Uh, and again, most churches are going to have a well-defined doctrinal statement, and certainly Compass Bible Church does, and uh, we break down the sections of our doctrine like most churches do, and uh, we briefly list them in this chapter, which I think is a good idea for us to just to go through uh, the basic components of a doctrinal statement. Uh, and it's always something that anyone should look at when they're looking for a new church or if you're doing partners in another church, your church should have a well-stated, well-crafted doctrinal statement. What I provided in this particular chapter is something so uh, minimalistic that uh, hopefully it wouldn't uh, get into too many details that another church using this program uh, would struggle with or, or stumble over. So it's a very modified form of our doctrinal statement, but it's important in partners if you are um, obviously trying to seek some uh, uh, oneness of mind regarding what we believe to go through this carefully and just make sure that your partner is in agreement with these basic things from bibliology, our belief of the Bible, all the way to eschatology, these eight sections. And we wanna make sure we talk about them and that we can sign off on them and wholeheartedly without reservation be able to say, yes, we believe these things and this is what our church uh, is all about.
The third subsection under this uh, part of the chapter on the church is going to deal with uh, biblical values, uh, church's biblical values. And uh, I know that many churches don't have this defined, but every church certainly has values, ways in which they express uh, themselves in carrying out the, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, and uh, even their doctrinal statement. And so we have eight of those as well, much like our doctrinal statement here at Compass, and these help us to kind of keep uh, online in uh, being the kind of church that does these things with a, a particular focus, uh, whether it's uh, our statement of a high view of God or making sure that we define the gospel carefully and biblically, uh, whether it has to do with expository preaching and what the pulpit is going to be all about. Those are things that we keep in the forefront of our thinking as a church, and certainly the leadership uh, has to be uh, demonstrating this in their practice. Uh, but we want to make these things the kind of the the, the rallying cry of the church. And what I found in my experience in uh, years of pastoral ministry is that if a church doesn't agree on, on a certain set of values, we're, we're, we're headed for some kind of, of uh, eventual conflict. There'll be a train wreck because these are the kinds of things that hold a, a church together. There may be a, a church that has a agreement on the basic uh, tenets of biblical doctrine, but if they're not in agreement as to how those are fleshed out in real life, uh, what I say in the chapter, how the church feels as it uh, goes about those things, and I don't mean how we feel as we do it, but how the church, what the feel of the church is, what the values of the church is, what the church sees as important in the expression of its doctrine, uh, then there's going to be conflict and eventually there'll be some kind of uh, bifurcation of the church, some kind of split something uh, that is going to lead to uh, increasing tension. So it's good for any church to not only define its purpose and its doctrine, uh, but to get around to defining its, its values. What what is it uh, going to see as the most appropriate expression uh, in the 21st century, in our case, of, of living out and carrying out uh, the purpose and doctrine of the church? So for a church that doesn't have it, if you're doing partners in another church, this might be a good starting place for your church and your church's pastors uh, and leaders to sit down and go through uh, what they believe is important as it relates to their view of God or their view of, of evangelism, their view of the gospel, whatever it might be. So those are there listed uh, in our uh, chapter 6 to try and help uh, generate some thinking elsewhere or in our church just to make sure that our um, congregants, those involved in partners, are absolutely clear about what our values are and that they can wholeheartedly sign off on those. The next subsection deals with church leadership. Now, to be biblical in leadership, certainly we have to work within the parameters of the New Testament. We can't uh, you know, venture outside of what the Bible says a church needs to have. Uh, certainly every church puts external structures or some other things in place, most churches do at least, uh, to try and uh, make that leadership structure functional. Uh, and while this may prove to be the most controversial part of this chapter for those that are kind of entrenched in one particular way of doing church, I think it's helpful for everybody going through chapter 6 to look at what the Bible has to say about the two levels of leadership that are spelled out in the Bible that every church should have. Um, at our church, we call them the pastors and ministry leaders, and we derive those words from the Bible. Uh, but there are three words used as you go through this chapter. Um, you'll see that, and, and your partner will work through that. Three words that are used in the New Testament to describe that pastoral office. Uh, that's poimen, episkopos, and presbyteros. Those are the three Greek words that I make you kind of almost laboriously work through in this chapter. Poimen is the words that, that's translated usually pastor. Uh, episkopos is translated usually in modern translations overseer. And uh, presbyteros is translated to elder, uh, most normally. 
if it's used in a technical sense for a church leader, sometimes it's translated older person. Uh, but those three words, pastor, overseer, and elder, are all used interchangeably. And that's so important that your partner sees that as they work through all of these passages. And by the way, I should say, pastor is the word for shepherd. A poiman is a pastor or a shepherd. So those two English words translate poiman. Uh, Episcopos translated overseer, sometimes in the oldest translations, bishop. Uh, the King James translates it that way, and then uh, presbyteros, elder. Now those three words, if we can understand that in the Bible those are used uh, interchangeably, then those are all synonymous to one pastoral office, uh, then we won't get off track in beginning to use just one of those words to define a particular uh, required level of leadership in the church. Some people see elders as, as board members, uh, which is uh, a, a superfluous external structure that you can certainly, free, you're free to add, but we cannot blame that biblical word on that particular modern structure. We have to realize that uh, poimen, presbyteros, and episkopos are all used interchangeably. Church needs to have a plurality of, of, of pastors or elders or, or overseers. Um, so you can call them whatever you'd like, but you should be able to, like the New Testament, to use them interchangeably. Uh, if at our church we have seven pastors, then we have seven elders, we have seven overseers. Uh, that's the, the minimum biblical requirement uh, to have a level of leaders that are ultimately responsible for administrating and for um, teaching and, and providing a doctrinal uh, direction and, and leadership, uh, that level has to be in place. Uh, deacon, diakonos, that word that's used uh, that we get into next in that section, uh, usually translated deacon. It's just transliterated, actually. Deacon uh, can be translated servant. Uh, it also translates the word uh, ministry or minister. Uh, and in our church, we call them ministry leaders because certainly that's what the diakonos were. They were people that were put in places uh, to be role models for the church and to lead in the church uh, as servant leaders, uh, kind of carrying out the basic uh, administrative uh, tasks that were required uh, in the church. So if you've got ministry leaders and you've got pastors, you can call them elders, you can call them overseers, or you've got uh, ministry leaders and deacons, then you've got the two basic structures that the Bible uh, sets up for us in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and what we see uh, played out in the New Testament. Uh, beyond that, you can put structures in place. But what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to show uh, the basic synchronon, the basic requirement, the basic uh, necessity of New Testament doctrine as it relates to church leadership. If you want to add board structures, certainly we're free to do that. Even an external structure of some kind, if you wanted to have churches pool together as some churches do, but we cannot point to the scripture and blame that uh, on, on a, a scriptural mandate. Uh, so there's a lot of latitude that we find in how we carry out church leadership as long as we have those two basic structures uh, in place, which I go to great lengths in this section to try and get the, uh, uh, the person going through partners to recognize and to interact with. So you need to be, as a, a leader in partners, clear on this in your mind. And I think if you work through this section uh, carefully and thoughtfully, you'll see it. Uh, it's, it's all right there. Uh, if you have questions, you know, certainly talk to one of the pastors uh, on staff and at your church. Uh, but uh, then we want to make sure that you can uh, make sure that your partner doesn't have any uh, ambiguity, any, any uh, uh, uncertainty about what the scripture is requiring and what the Bible says about church leadership. Uh, one thing that I do point out here, which I said earlier, was that those are appointed 
by other leaders. Pastors are appointed by pastors. That's why you just can't break off and, and start in a, you know, an apartment and, and just kind of appoint the most knowledgeable guy to be the pastor. Pastors need to be uh, affirmed by other pastors. That's the New Testament model. That's what we see as, um, as the text requires of, of, of pastors and leaders. So uh, we wanna see that being uh, rightly ordained, rightly put into place, uh, rightly affirmed, authorized, tested, all of that, uh, so that we can say we have biblical uh, pastors and biblical ministry leaders uh, in place in our church. In the next section, we deal with fully participating in your church, making sure that uh, you're the kind of participant in the church that you, you ought to be. Uh, we begin with being committed to your church. There's a lot of consumerism, as I point out in the chapter, where people kind of see church as a restaurant. They come and they just want uh, you know, a comfortable place to get a good spiritual meal, all at a good price with all the conveniences, and this one's not working, you know, not feeling well, they'll go over to that one. Or maybe they just sample all of them in their community, and, and that's how they um, kind of uh, exist as a Christian, and that's not uh, the biblical model. Clearly, the Bible wants us to be uh, committed to our local church, our particular church, uh, under the authority and leadership of our our pastors and, and, and ministry leaders. So uh, that's what we wanna shoot for here. Uh, some churches have a formal membership, some do not. Uh, some have a form you gotta fill out and an interview you have to have. Um, other churches don't, and, and that's fine because that level of, of, uh, of connection is not mandated in scripture, but there needs to be a formal connection, but there needs to be a connection and there needs to be a commitment. And uh, one way I like to, to kind of clarify that is to make sure that every uh, Christian can, can point to their church. They know who their pastors are. Uh, they know the fellowship that they're a part of and they're committed there. So we wanna shoot for that uh, regardless of the structure that's in place at the particular church that you're, uh, that you're in or that your partner is a part of. Uh, we just wanna make sure there's a, a commitment and a loyalty there. Doesn't mean there's not a time to leave a church. Certainly there are in uh, situations where we need to move geographically or when there's a problem in the church that can't be uh, overcome. But the, the norm uh, during uh, good normal peacetime events in, in, in the life of a church uh, should have and should be made up of a group of people that are firmly committed to being a part of that church. Now, I, I don't want it to be misleading in the next subsection, we deal with baptism. Um, and as I try to point out, uh, it doesn't mean that we need to be baptized in every church that we become a part of. Uh, certainly we need to be able to say that we have been baptized after our conversion. That's certainly what we see in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 says we're supposed to make disciples baptizing them. Uh, so we need to make the disciple, then we baptize them. So we're looking for a post-conversion baptism uh, by leaders of the church. That's the, the context that people are authorized in the church to uh, kind of uh, have this initiatory rite that Christ set up. Uh, as a part of someone's involvement in the body of Christ. Now, of course, if you leave uh, or you move or whatever it might be, you don't need to be rebaptized in the church, but we need to look to a place in your testimony, in your partner's testimony, where after they've become a genuine follower of Christ, uh, they've stood up and boldly um, been baptized. Uh, and this can be a sticking point. Uh, if your partner uh, has skirted this or in some way uh, kind of avoided it over the years, uh, you may have even clarified in chapter one their testimony and maybe their testimony wasn't uh, when they thought it was because they're looking at the biblical call of repentance and faith and what the gospel is and they realize they become a Christian maybe uh, as a young married person instead of as a teenager and they got baptized as a, as a teen. Uh, we need to look at baptism uh, as, as a post-conversion 
one-time event uh, by a church, at a church, it doesn't have to be at a church, but by a assembled church, um, and, and we need to be able to say, yes, we fulfilled that biblical calling. Um, so that may be something we need to press a, a bit on, and, and we don't want to get somebody through partners uh, without seriously responding to the expressed call and command of Christ uh, to be baptized. So could be a, a point to, to address and maybe even linger on if there's some resistance there. We certainly want to appeal to the fact that as Christians, there's no need for us uh, to ever be ashamed of Christ or embarrassed, uh, maybe a nerve-wracking experience for some that don't want to get up in front of people, but we need to be serious about uh, and unashamed about standing up for Christ and doing what He asked us to do. Next, we talk about the Lord's Supper, and uh, it's a short section, but certainly we want to talk about it with our partner, make sure they understand what it is, that it's a memorial meal to do in remembrance of Christ. Uh, nothing is happening to the elements in terms of a uh, uh, transubstantiation or anything like that. If you're familiar with those terms, we, we simply remember Christ's death in the context theologically and historically that we ought to, and uh, it's a great act of worship. Uh, it is a um, modified form of the Passover meal, and the Bible doesn't tell us how often we should have it. We shouldn't sweat that if our church does it uh, once a quarter, once a month, uh, once a week. That's not uh, the critical matter, what's critical is that we uh, do it, and when we do it, we do it with the right kind of heart, the right kind of mind, uh, and with gratitude, as, as the New Testament directs us. But there's some passages there to look up and maybe worth talking about so that the next time your partner goes to uh, the Lord's Supper, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, they're doing it uh, maybe with a deeper sense of uh, appreciation or thoughtfulness than they did before they dealt with this section. Next, we deal with the issue of um, Church discipline, very uncomfortable topic, but one that's important because of the priority and responsibility of the pastors, the shepherds, to be able to uh, protect, govern, guide the flock. And that's certainly going to involve uh, church discipline, which uh, is clearly in the Bible a requirement of every church to be concerned with this. And that would be protecting the flock uh, in this case uh, from those who proffer any kind of false doctrine uh, unrepentantly, anybody who's involved in any kind of uh, unrepentant sin uh, or failure of some kind to, to, to do what God has asked us to do. And there's been, you know, kind of an obstinance against uh, complying with what the Scripture says. And uh, the pastors have to handle those on a case-by-case -case basis, and the passages are there for us to look at. We want to make sure that we understand that. If we're a part of any church, we recognize uh, that they have a spiritual responsibility and authority in our lives to carry out church discipline. So an important section and maybe a good place to stop and talk about the ramifications of that in your, uh, in your partner's meeting. On the last page, we deal with, uh, with giving, which... Um, can also be a touchy topic, particularly in the climate that we're in, in terms of uh, folks having such a disdain for uh, uh, the, the con men, the charlatans that go out in the name of Christ, and they're all about money. But clearly, those bad examples shouldn't keep us as Christians from being serious about giving to the churches God has told us to. Uh, always the topic of tithing seems to come up, and uh, I've taught about that a lot. You can find uh, sermons on that in our uh, uh, Focal Point Ministries website, but we want to be able to uh, clarify that the, uh, the, the taxation, clearly uh, the taxation in the Old Testament for the priesthood and uh, the welfare system and all of those things, it was all actually a multiplied set of, of um, 
tithes in the Old Testament, which means tenth, is not what we're dealing with in the New Testament. What we're dealing with in the New Testament are what we could see an equivalent to in the Old Testament of the free will offerings. And so uh, what we're called to do is to give. Galatians 6 says everyone must uh, give and we should give. And we give, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, in response uh, to God's blessing in our lives. Uh, but the amount is something we have to prayerfully decide uh, as a family or as an individual. Uh, we, we purpose in our heart to give it. We give it thankfully. We give it cheerfully. So what we want to call people to do here is not try and uh, zero in on, on a percentage necessarily, not, although that's not off the table of discussion here at the end of the chapter, but we want to talk about the commitment to faithfully give. And certainly those that say, well, I can't afford to give to the church, uh, as I often say, we really can't afford not to. God has said very clearly that when we do and when we're obedient to this command to give, uh, He certainly blesses us. So even in the worst of times, um, you know, we give proportionately, of course, and it may be a very, very small amount. And Jesus illustrated that with the gal who gave, the widow who gave the, the, the widow's mite. Uh, and, and that was such a small amount. But Christ said, you know, that was the biggest sacrifice of all. God was honored by that. Uh, and, and even in the worst of times, we want to continue the discipline of giving. Uh, but we want to do that um, um, with a sense of, of, of obedience to God and worship to God. And God will always respond. And as He does respond, the Bible's clear, He ends up providing for those that are generous and He uh, uh, prospers them more. We don't give to get. Obviously, that's not uh, the, the motivation. And we've got terrible examples of that with the prosperity gospel. But what we want to do is we want to give to God faithfully and obediently, as the Scripture says. And we look at passages there uh, that are worth looking up. Then we end with a very short paragraph about uh, serving, but we're going to deal with that coming up in the next couple of chapters. So uh, we'll leave that, but get their mind thinking about clearly there is another section to this that we're going to spend an entire chapter on. Then the chapter ends with a reading list. Hopefully there's some good things there that might be worth checking out. And we don't want to saddle our partner with a bunch of books to read at the end of every chapter. But there may be one or two questions that come up that one of these books or a chapter in one of these books can answer. And that's worth researching, particularly with the advantages we have with the internet. We can go to Amazon on a lot of these books and look at the entire um, um, table of contents and see what's in it. So worth researching some of the titles. I've tried to annotate every single one of these books so that you can see a little bit of what's in them. I comment on the, each of the books, but utilize those as needed at the end of every chapter.